This is episode 235 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Jeff Berkeley is Back. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I am so pleased to welcome a returning guest. Jeff Berkeley is with us today. And also Bill Aho is back. Yay, Bill hey. is back. So welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show, Jeff. Hey, thank you. It's great to be back. I appreciate it. Good. I'm uh, going to introduce you. Uh, so Jeff Berkeley is a San Diego native, one of the few. And he's the, <laughs> he's the son of two musicians, his dad was a musical evangelist. I came up with that term. That's and, great. And Jeff actually talked quite a bit about his dad in the previous visit, uh, which was an episode that ran in September of 2020. And I'll link to that episode. That was really a nice show right in the middle of the pandemic. Um, so yeah, that was a very special time. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you. Uh, but Jeff has been around San Diego and the LA music scene for decades and someone that so many of us turn to in San Diego to know what's happening locally with the music scene and just music in general. His own story continues to evolve. He started on drums with his dad's encouragement and played in high school with a variety of bands. And then in the 90s, he was part of the coffeehouse scene, which I think we're going to talk more about today, especially Java Joes. He moved to the Congos um, and then to the West African Djembe. Am I saying that right? You did. You got it right. Cool. And he played with a bunch of famous people, Jackson Brown, Ben Harper, David Crosby, Arlo Guthrie, Venice, Indigo Girls, and then the San Diego Staples, Jewel and Steve Poltz. But his guitar playing and singing has also emerged and during that time. And he co-founded Berkeley Heart with Coleman Hart. And uh, de that developed into a very, very popular San Diego duo. And I'll also mention here one aspect of Jeff's work, which is so appealing to me, is his use of humor and just a general good time, which flows into his work as a producer, where he has helped countless people fine-tune their work and also have fun doing it. Uh, so I'll stop there. So you actually get to hear him talk about his music. And so nice to have you back, Jeff. Oh, thank you very, very much. It's so nice to be back. It's good to see you guys. So we talked two years ago when the impact of the pandemic was really, unfortunately, really starting to set in about what it was going to mean musically and financially for musicians. Um, and, you know, you were kind enough to talk at that time, pretty frankly, about our need to support musicians because they weren't able to go out and tour, which heavily impacted their ability to make a living. So now when you look back on those two years, what do you think? It was a good question, by the way. I, all of us that looking back on it, I think all of us have a little bit of a of a grateful to be alive kind of a feeling. Mm. So many people died. Yeah. And it's so hard to remember sometimes to even just to keep keep it in perspective, like the actual numbers, just it's just staggering. And you know, it's um, I believe that we're all kind of kind of in a state of a little bit of a P PTSD kind of a mm -hmm. thing. It was it was definitely traumatic. Mm -hmm. And there was months and months of waking up not knowing what was going on. Some of us were afraid that we were going to die. Some of us were afraid that our government was lying to us. Some of us all, you know, all sorts of people were afraid for all sorts of different reasons. And, I, you know, everybody comes down differently in the political spectrum. And that's the other thing is that it, it was so politicized. It, it was just a terrifying time. And, and I came out of it, you know, with... Uh, 
disappointment on how our our leaders handled it and also just how some of my you know people that I know and love handled it you know and and so I'm 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 feeling that but also from a musical perspective I don't think it's over yet uh-huh. that we were the the, the entertainment and um, you know restaurant industries and 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 those types of places where people gather were hit really hard and places that we used to have to play in are gone that as far as the singer songwriter scene in San Diego it's frustrating <clears throat> there aren't really venues we're all playing cover band venues and stuff because those are the only ones that are open right now and those aren't places that are good listening rooms for acoustic singer songwriters. I see. And so there's some scrambling and people trying to find ways to do that. Uh, there's a, a great, there's a couple great little projects that are happening, but there's not much in the way of finance behind them. And, and there's not a lot of uh, money in it to begin with. So right, it's kind of a dark science, a dark time for the rebellion to quote star Wars <laughs> a little bit. We're, we're all trying to figure out, what the next move is at the same time, all of that depressing stuff is happening. There's this incredible explosion of art Mm. happening right now. People, us songwriter types and artists of all kinds were, we were deeply affected by what just happened, just like everybody else. What's happening currently. It's, it's, uh, it's terrifying. And all those things I mentioned before. So our art becomes, infected by that <laughs> in, in good ways and and in scary ways but i'm i'm personally working on like seven records right now with people <laughs> who are who are doing i mean i've got 13 records going total but like half oh of those God. are yeah it's really exciting <laughs> um, but half, <laughs> that's one word for it <laughs> half of those including one of them is my own are made up of songs and sounds and artistic directions that the artists have never gone in before oh. i mean drastically different because i think some of us kind of woke up and realized what was important to us artistically mm-hmm. and just started to focus on that for me personally i was writing some really fun songs. Uh, Kalman and I in Berkeley Heart, we, we've written some stuff lately. Um, before the pandemic, we finished a song called Faded Tattoo, which was a, is a, it's a great country song. And it's got this idea of how memories fade like a tattoo on your oh. skin. And, and it's very cool and kitschy and sweet. And before that, we did a song called Dear John, John Dear, which is really quirky and funny. And those are songs where you know, we came up with a title, we sat down, we talked about a story, we specifically tried to write a song about this thing, which is very cool and very rewarding. And sometimes there's money and stuff like that. But (laughs) (laughs) the songs I love of my own and of Berkeley Hearts are the ones where I was so emotionally moved, I had to sit down and write. And that has nothing to do with the rules of songwriting. And so I and uh, and these other artists I mentioned, I think we distilled everything down to exactly what we were after, which was to somehow explain to people what was going on inside of our hearts right now. Mm-hmm. And so I just stopped trying to write songs. And I wrote 14 songs in three oh days. Gosh. I just wow. stopped. And I and and songwriters right now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, oh yeah, but you didn't really write songs because you weren't really trying and you didn't go back and edit them. And I, and I say, screw you. They're amazing. They're some of the best songs I've ever written. And I'm saying, screw you to myself because that's the inner critic thing that I had to silence. I had to kill it violently murder the inner critic inside me because what I realized was I was absolutely my worst enemy. And I had, I had let so many great, ideas and songs go by the wayside because they weren't dear john john dear or faded tattoo or some like quirky idea that i could thought could be a number one hit you know Mm. and sometimes when you feel like maybe you're out of time in your life Mm -hmm. it causes you to go oh no i don't want to do that i want to do this is what i really want to do and all i really want to do is write songs that explain these matters of the heart and mind that are that are going on in all of us and somehow get people to go, yeah, man, God, exactly. 
And that's what my new record is doing. And these other records that I mentioned, they're, they're absolutely like to me, Jackson Brown is probably the best, the best writer about matters of love and the heart and interpersonal relationships. It just, he's the one that says it right to me. And that's what these songs are, are coming when, as they come out they're they're I can't believe it, but they're explaining and they're, they have these beautiful melodies and mm-hmm. hooky lines and things I never meant to have happen, but they happened accidentally when I brought them to the band or when I brought them to Kalman. And I'm just, I'm, I'm feeling all that right now. So that was your first question, but uh, <laughs> it was, an, it's an amazing one. And something that I'm actually going round and round with every day of, of just to be authentic and not try and color things or try and be a certain thing, but just to let whatever the art is, just let it come through me and, and not get in the way of it. And that's been the most rewarding thing in the world. Yeah. That's really exciting. That's like, I mean, a, a reason to wake up every day or not go to sleep <laughs> just to keep mm. on doing it. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly what's happening is that I, I'm up really late going for it. And then I'm up at like 6 a.m. I was this morning and I've got headphones on. I'm editing all this stuff. Because now when we record, you know, we back when tape was the thing we used, it was very limited. You only had a certain amount of channels and tracks and tape was $150 for 12 minutes of tape for two inch tape. And that's just the tracking tape. You also had to have a different kind of size tape to mix to and then a different size tape to master to. and just the tape was expensive. And so you would record, you'd get a really great take and then you'd fix that. Well, nowadays it's all to a computer. We have unlimited amounts of tape as it were. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I just get the band together. And this is what a lot of people do now. We just get the, the musicians together in a room and we take takes. Mm-hmm. We play through the song, usually between five to sometimes 10 times. Ten's really on the outside. It's usually four or five times. And by the end of that, everybody's played the song perfectly within those five takes. And so all I got to do later is put my headphones on and go through and just find those moments. And then I make a composite of all of the takes into one. And that's what you hear on the record. And so everybody stays in that emotional uh, dynamic envelope of the, the build of the song. You're not starting and stopping. You don't lose when, when you're punching in and out, you sometimes you would get artists saying, God, what part of the song are we in? Like yeah. you couldn't even remember. And so this way, nobody has to do that. You just play through the song a bunch. And then I go back later and find all the stuff. And it's really fun. It's ar- it's archaeology. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that was a great answer to a complicated uh, situation that we're in and a complicated question. But yes, yeah, it made me think of a lot of things. You know, I think you're right. There are a bunch of things that happened we are recognition that life is short and also that everything got thrown in the air and is falling down in a different way than it was before. Oh, that is so well said. That's exactly what's happening in the music world. Yeah. It's very disconcerting, but I, I do believe that there are some interesting things that are coming out of that new ways of us to look at things, whether it's work or our creative life or how we spend our time, how we take care of other people. Yeah, I think there's a lot that's up now, but I do feel for you because I think this is a nerve wracking time um, for creative people. So hang in there. I think, you know, I'm hopeful that good things will come out of it and we just need to take care of each other and yeah, and be we do accepting of some of the things that are coming out. You mentioned some of the behavior of your friends and family, and you know I've been surprised at that too. But I try and calm myself by saying, you know, we're learning, we're growing, we're learning, we're seeing some things that maybe we're not always our best selves, and that's something that we can dig into and get better at. So I'm really hopeful that you know when I we talked to Lisa Sanders a few um maybe weeks or months ago and she too just has so many projects going on so yeah there's a lot that's happening and i hope a lot of good will come out of it yeah well it already is it already is and i'm i'm uh i'm having a lot of fun for sure well that's that's really the important thing right 
It is. It is. It'd be, we're, we're going to have to, we're definitely going to have to figure out a way for, for artists to be able to generate income. Yeah. Because the old ways are just changing and going away and that's part of growth, but um, it's still, it's still going to have to happen. And, and I, and some artists are hearing this. I, I know a lot of young folks have the idea that money should kind of be out of it. And that's cool. That's cool. But you still have to go find. If you're living you still, at home. Yeah. <laughs> if you're living at home, that's true. And my landlord just isn't, they're really, really great people, but they still have to have money to keep the place working and all that. We're still in the reality of a, of a, a democracy and, a um, you know, people have to make a living and all those things. And so I'm trying to talk to people. I'm, I'm in, in, in discussions with, some pretty heavy folks about what we're going to do and and everybody kind of doesn't really know where things are going to land yet. So if you're listening out there and you have an idea on how the music business should go forward, that would be great. I don't think any of us believes that there's, there's, there's a way to be a millionaire or some like thing, even a millionaire is not that much, that big of a deal anymore, but you can't become a billionaire as an artist necessarily anymore. You can, but it's, it's rare, rare, very, very, very more rare than it ever was before. And really all we want to do is pay our bills. Yeah. Maybe be able to, you know, go on a vacation every once in a while. I don't, right. I think that's the American dream still. Yeah. And, and artists have that American dream too. Sure. I grew up as a preacher's kid and there was this weird presumption for the, from people that were in the church, the congregation or the flock. There was this feeling that the preacher shouldn't make like that money kind of colored it and that money shouldn't come into it. And for a preacher to want to make enough money to like be comfortable and stuff, somehow that just didn't sit right with the congregation. And I think that kind of happens, uh, that kind of happens with uh, artists as well. I think people feel like if you let the money become the focus of the art, well, then that's a problem. And that's true. However, it kind of has to be a little bit of the focus we have to generate money with our art so it's a weird dichotomy that we're all kind of wrestling with and i think if we all started to just value art in our culture a little bit more uh that it would make a difference you know don't download that song from Bandcamp for free they're offering it to you for free but give them some dough don't be a dick <laughs> i like when ben, when Bandcamp will do their fridays where they don't take any cut of the money and they do it, do it all for the artist, pretty much. Yeah. Can you imagine if Spotify did that? Oh. Just one day. Just one just day a one, week, Spotify. <laughs> one, day, one day a year. Oh, one day a year would change, would change things for people. I, I just, you know, yeah. Anyway, I'm not sure how it's going to work, but something's going something's gonna to give because artists just in San Diego are moving out of here because mm. they can't afford to live here anymore. I mean, there's just nowhere... It's just a tough place, man. It's a tough place. But I appreciate your good thoughts. And you're right. It is a little bit aggravating and a little bit worrisome at the moment. But something's going to have to change and we'll figure it out. Yeah, I think things could look a lot different a decade from now. But I do, since I'm a finance person and I coach people about their careers and making a living, I do just have to jump in here and say, I don't know where this comes from, this idea that artists should be starving in a garret. And it's a strange notion. You know, somehow we're very accepting of the idea that some, you know, fund manager should be pulling down, you know, whatever, millions and millions of dollars a year. But somehow a musician shouldn't make a living wage. Or as you said, somebody in the church shouldn't make a living wage. It's a weird thing. And I think we do need to kind of question ourselves if we see that we're exhibiting that kind of belief because where does that come from it makes no sense yeah and yeah i th i think it some of it starts with us as consumers just our understanding that we need to support artists uh as we do you know other people who are making money whether it's real estate agents or you know at a corporate executives it's like well why why should those people make all the money it, it, yeah to me it doesn't make much sense no it, it's you're right you're right we just have we've lost our ability to have to see value i think one of the negative sides of the internet was just that music became free mm -hmm. yeah and, and in our brains now that's just how we all see it 
and that it's deep. It's it's a thing that's going to really have to be worked on. Uh, but there's there's whole generations of people now that just don't ever remember having to pay for music. Mm. Yeah, yeah, younger crowd. Yeah, it's it feels like it's a. Uh, what do you mean pay for? What do you, what do you mean actually buy something? Anyone uh, under thirty, man. We're talking about under thirty and under. It's not just teenage. I mean, people. Yeah, yeah. They grew up. They grew up. <laughs> our culture. Our culture is more than half the people in our culture do not remember having to go to a record store and buy a record for whatever it was or 15 bucks for a CD. I think when mm-hmm. in the heyday of them. Yeah. I, I still, I still go to record stores and I still like my vinyl or CDs. I like hard, a hard copy of something because I don't know. It just means more to me. You just said it. It means more to you, but that's not the case with a 30 and under person. It just doesn't, it can't mean more to them. There's, it doesn't, it was never framed that way in our culture for them. I I have I always have this theory that at some point, because of the way internet works with hacking and everything else, at some point someone's going to hack into the cloud. Oh, for sure. And 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 it's going to get shut down, and people are going to lose all this music that they have downloaded into the cloud, and it's going to freak people out, and hopefully it bring back more of the renaissance of hard things again, even even if the even if the cloud comes back, or or I mean, it just seems like governments and stuff. If somebody takes down a, a city hacking, they're going to say, well, let's just stop the internet for now and figure out how to fix it. And that could hurt people for a while. And yeah. but, I mean, but it could cause people to actually do things. Oh, there you are. Do, do, do things to be more involved. Hate to be negative, but that's, but that's kind of how I feel things will change. Well, you never know what's going to be the thing. I. I, I went through a stage of being really angry about it all, thinking, why can't we go back to how it was? It was all working so good. Well, we can't go back. Everything's changed, and that's okay. That's the whole nature of things. And actually, we have a huge opportunity right now, and, and our resources are vast. It's just that nobody's figured out the way that it can work for consumers and artists. Mm. There's got to be, there's another ingredient that we haven't found yet that's going to have the money in it yeah. <laughs> or, or the means. I mean, uh, honestly, the, the really the thing that, that would change everything right now is if somehow recording studios and, and places that create art, musical art, are somehow subsidized by something. So that so that an artist just simply has to book time and go record. I don't know how. I don't think the government's going to be that way. But I wouldn't be surprised if somehow we figure out a nonprofit organization or two <laughs> that subsidizes recording studios. In other words, people like me, and I know this sounds self-serving, and it is, but that's okay. People like me could be paid to work with artists that need to make a record, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And then that record can be given away at that point, and that makes the consumer happy. There's only one part of the business that isn't able to transition into this into this new. I just can't personally make records for free for people yeah. at the level that I'm making them. I can use my laptop to go to their house with some gear and do what any home studio can do. But but at the level at the at the world class tone and stuff I'm getting at the studio can't be done for free. It it just can't. And I can't do my work for free either. And I shouldn't have to, and I shouldn't have to feel like people expect that of me, but I get artists all the time who are surprised that I'm going to charge them. (laughs) It's it's weird. (laughs) Why would the, why would the artists think you're going to do it for free? That just, that's because they, because they can't sell their CDs at gigs oh. mm-hmm. because there's no, I mean, it's serious, man. There's nobody buys CDs, period. Well, Thomas I do, but one, make a thousand bucks. <laughs> we used, we used to easily make a sell, you know, in a big room, we'd sell a hundred CDs, no problem. Mm-hmm. And that would be like, you know, three or four nights a week on tour. It was a huge part of our income and it's gone yeah. over. But we're, but like I said, if there's a new way, that yeah. just hasn't been found yet. Mm-hmm. And right now we're struggling because we haven't found it, but the struggle is what's going to motivate someone to go, Oh wait, what about, and boom, mm-hmm. there's the idea. Mm-hmm. Someone like someone with, with a quarter of the money of Elon Musk 
mm-hmm. could save the music business mm-hmm. literally tomorrow. Yeah. And that just seems doable at this point. There's, there's people out there that have that kind of dough. Yeah. It's just going to take one of them or two of them, you know, or whatever, but I don't know what, I don't know what the answer is. I I'm just grasping at straws, but we'll figure it out. Yeah, we didn't uh, plan to talk about this, but I think this is a really fascinating conversation. Of course, I would being a finance person. But, you know, there is something funny about that there does seem to be money available, whether corporations, you know, kind of proclaim it, a portion of our proceeds go to blah, blah, blah. But you hardly ever hear them say, go to the arts. Like they'll go to climate change or they'll go to solve poverty or they go for clean water, or hmm. but we hardly ever hear anyone say, and a portion of our, you know, your, um, what you spend here will go to the arts. Whereas I feel as though in decades past, that was a more common thing, you know, the whole national endowment for the arts or, yeah, um, yeah, it's funny. We seem to have kind of fallen out of the habit of that. It's just because of the devaluation of music in our mm-hmm. culture and other cultures around the world. And that just comes from music being free now. Mm. It's not malicious. It's just that when you make something free, you literally are taking the value out of it yeah. mm-hmm. uh, to people. But there is more than just money value. There's culturally our music is such a huge part of the way cultures stay healthy and mm-hmm peaceful and all those things. And I honestly truly believe that that once music started to be stripped out of our culture, and I'm talking about the seventies when, when financially we couldn't afford to have music programs at schools anymore and all that started mm-hmm. to die out. It's been a slow death. Mm-hmm. And now we've, we're starting to see what's happening generationally to people. It's just that music is just not valued as much. And that's all. Well, I, I think creativity itself is, is taking a hit. I mean, creativity to me is one of the most important things of, of a human being to be able to do. And not everybody has that gift. And to, to stifle that gift even more with people is, it's like if people, if people can't be creative and they can't foster ideas and get other people to learn new things and try new things because they, it keeps on like a domino effect. It keeps on adding more and more people to be creative. And that's how it's going to change the world in a positive way at some point. But I don't know. It's it's frustrating. You're right about to stifle certain types of creativity is is evil, I think. But <laughs> on the other hand, there are some like there's even though TikTok drives me crazy, there's still so much creativity going on oh, yeah. in those ways. When we were kids, we would go buy records and listen to music and now kids go make their own well, use their phone like to make their own song or little dance thing that's like 40 seconds long or whatever 20 mm-hmm. seconds long and that's where the creativity is mm-hmm. there it's a much shorter attention span and it's but it's the same it's the same creativity and all that should be able to exist all at the same time we don't have to stifle old kinds of old school kinds of creativity just to make room for the other ones but it's a weird it's an odd time where there's both a creative boom in certain ways mm-hmm. and also a killing of of certain types of art and creativity so yeah for for a lack of funding yeah it's, yep. it's, you're right it's a very interesting thing where sort of uh, creative work is free uh, and there's a lot of it right there's more than we can possibly consume that's right but yeah it's nobody's paying for it so yeah right. it's, it's a weird situation I'm going to try to get us back on track for a second here. Yeah. <laughs> um, Good. Thank you. We, we talked a little bit about that. You, were, you have like 13 records in the works or, or something to that effect. Um, but what new projects have you worked if that you can talk about? Have you worked on in the last year that you um, want to give a little shout out to? Because I know you worked on a lot of different things. Yeah, we've been been having a lot of fun. Uh, well, let's see. Um, you know, Ron Houston and Sandy Lawless put out some records that I made not that long ago. Ron Houston made two records at once, and uh, his records were, were real interesting um, because he comes from the outlaw country world and, you know, sort of was leaning into that Confederate flag waving America kind of world. And then when the George Floyd thing happened on television, it broke his heart. Oh. And he, for the first time saw things for what they were and realized that those symbols weren't healthy for everyone. And, and it wasn't just a, a laughable fun time 
country music thing. It was, you know, it had terrible. So anyway, he, he went through this huge change and he wrote two records and I got to make them both. And uh, the first one's been out and then the, the other one just came out. Sandy Lawless has a band called Into, Into the Blue Sky, but she wanted to make a solo album and wrote up a bunch of songs. And that was a very, really fun record that's been out. But the ones I'm, I'm working on at at the moment is uh, I have a band called Jeff Berkeley and the band and that's <laughs> spelled B-A-N-N-E-D band. Yeah. I saw and, that. Uh, yeah. yeah so is is that new? Yep. That's a, that kind of was birthed out of the pandemic oh, and out okay. of my, um, my live stream and people started to join me and, and now there's seven people and it's an amazing band with Rick Nash and Josh Hermsmeyer and Jason Cox and Josh Weinstein and, uh, Ted Stern on pedal steel and, and anyway, it's great. And so we're, we're making a new record. Those are the songs I told you about that I wrote over three days. And that was just us in the studio playing live. And it's been really, it's a really fun record. Um, also my buddy, Ted Stern, who plays in my band, he's made a, he's making a record and he's an incredible musician and his record. He's also a rocket scientist. He's a, <laughs> an electrical rocket engineer and he literally builds rockets and like so, and so I always mix that thing where you say it's not brain surgery or it's not rocket science. <laughs> I always say it's not rocket surgery. That's funny. <laughs> but Ted is actually a rocket surgeon. And so, anyways, he's wrote this whole rock opera that's a sci-fi thing about like this weird sci-fi story that's totally amazing. Oh. And so I'm working on that. I worked on the new Rebecca Jade record that just came out. She's oh, yeah. amazing. I got to do the vocals that, at the studio. And God, that was literally just sitting there watching her do her thing, listening to her do her thing was <laughs> magical. Yeah. Uh, She's I'm, uh, really special. Yeah. I'm working on the new Lauren Lee album. Uh, which is she's really great she won best pop at the awards last year and she's got a brand new record coming out that's sort of like um like 70s Joni Mitchell Mm -hmm. kind of like that Hajira era of her stuff and it's so inspiring and sweet and we just got the strings done and we're about to start mixing on that so I'm really excited about that the new Gregory Page record which I don't want to tell you too much about, except to say that it's absolutely as far away from anything you've ever heard him do in your life. He's, he's told me that too, that it's different than what we're used to. It doesn't, what you just said doesn't come close to what's going to happen. When you <laughs> it's so we were all, I mean, literally mouths and eyes agape. Just, are you kidding me? When we first heard so I'm really excited for that to come out. Yeah. Uh, that'll be coming down the road. Um, let's see here. Uh, Story and Tune, who are amazing songwriting couple um, named Ben and Karen Grace. They, they host the, uh, the Monday nights at Park and Rec. If you ever are looking for something to do every Monday night, there's a great singer-songwriter event that they hold there. Uh, and that's in, in uh, University Heights at Park and Rec. And they're um, a married couple. Uh, he's from Australia or New Zealand. And I think he's from Australia and she's from here. And he writes amazing music and words. And she's an amazing lyricist. And they just, I got to co-write one of the songs and they just do this great Americana thing. So we're going to start digging in on that. We we're already in the pre-production phase of that. And uh, gosh, there's just so much going on. Uh, a guy named a guy named Randall Mark, who writes these awesome pop songs. And uh, gosh, it's just off the top of my head. That's what I'm, oh, the new <laughs> Tim Flannery and the Lunatic Fringe record that's about to come oh. out in September. And that's really exciting. A guy named Dave Buddha, who um, his real, his last name is Budakian, but he goes by Dave Buddha. And um, he's a great, like uh, sort of Mark Cohn uh, sort of songwriter, really rich baritone voice and very, very sweet singer. Anyway, there's just a ton going on and even more that we, we're doing the listen local podcast again with Catherine Beeks, which has been really fun. And anyway, I could go, I could go on. I'm, I know I'm, I'm not remembering something right now. That's really uh-huh. exciting, but uh, there's, Oh, Josh Weinstein's record. Oh my God. Josh <laughs> Weinstein, he's like, he's like Tom Waits or something. It's like that sort of really rich, colorful character. You're just going to love it, man. It just, I, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. There's lots going on. Boy, at some point you need to put out your own little comp- compilation of 
the best of Berkeley Studios. Wow, that would be a great idea. Yeah. I, I have put stuff up on my website, jeffberkeley.com, and more is coming. I need to add to it because everything that's up there has, is years and years old. But there's lots of fun stuff to listen to there. And uh, I need to update that, though. That's a good motivator. Thank you. That's what I need to do. So so how many bands are you in right now? Or, or not, I guess you have the two bands, but you play with everybody that comes to town. Yeah. I uh, I love to play guitar, and I, I'm really lucky to be asked. Right now, I'm playing in Sarah Petit's band, oh. and she's making a new record. Where I forgot to mention that we're making her record, and I've been playing in her band. And her and I have known each other for years and years and years, and I've never been in her band, but we just I don't know why, but we, there's something very very cool about when we play together. And my guitar playing fits her vocal really good, and um, so that's been really fun. So I play in her band. I play in Lisa Sanders' band whenever she has a band, but she's mostly just playing solo or with Karen because they travel a lot. It's expensive to bring a band. Yeah. <laughs> I play in Tim Flannery and the Lunatic Fringe for 25 years now. And that's amazing. Of course, Berkeley Heart, my own Jeff Berkeley in the band. Uh, I play in an iteration of Veronica May's band as well. Gosh. Wow. I know I go to I go to San Diego to see a show. You're always on stage. <laughs> yeah. You know what? You got to do a lot in this business to to keep the, the bill collectors happy. But also you're wanted because you're a, a known great player. So, I mean, you're a great musician. So people want to have you come on. Well, thanks for saying so. I, I hope that's I think that's true. And I, I hope to keep that going. I, well, I wanted to start talking about the coffee house scene. So Bill's been, uh, yeah, learning a lot more about Java Joe's, which I don't know a lot about, but I know that it was there and uh, people talk about it as really a catalyst for a lot of what emerged as uh, the San Diego music scene. So yeah, can you, can you talk about Java Joe's for us? I sure can. Gosh, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> But let me see if I can kind of get it distilled into a, a bit here. Java Joe is a guy named jo Joe Flamini. He's from San Diego, and he worked at UPS for years and years and years. And I think just got tired of it and uh, decided that, he, that it was right in the early 90s when coffee houses were everywhere. And live music, live acoustic music was in all the coffee houses. And I mean, there were 50 coffee houses in San Diego with live music. Oh, really? And yeah, wow. they were everywhere, opening up everywhere. I could play every oh. night of the week, no problem. Wow. And yeah, it was it was a magic time. And there were songwriters, the songwriting scene. We were meeting each other at these coffee houses. and But Java Joe's was one of the first one to open. He opened in Poway, mm -hmm. right next door to the chicken pie shop or the chicken, <laughs> uh, chicken pie diner in a little, a, a little storefront. And uh, he hired a young woman to be his barista there. Uh, and her name was Jewel and Jewel was the waitress there. And um, he started having an open mic there on every, I think it was Thursday nights or Monday nights. I think it was Monday nights. It was an amazing open mic with all sorts of different people. There were old school folkies still kind of around, like literally like, um, you know, Woody Guthrie era folks that were, pretty pretty old but still coming out um i mean like sam hinton was still alive you know oh, like all yeah. like it was wow. still there was still a time and so like we were we were getting touched by these these spirits these people who were coming out and playing a song and you would then you get to hang out with them and, and so i met a guy named john catcher and john convinced john is a singer songwriter in san diego really amazing he convinced joe to let him play there every tuesday night and I started playing percussion with John at Java Joe's every Tuesday night. And the other songwriters that were hanging out at the open mics would come out and see us. Lisa Sanders, Gregory Page, Joel Raphael, Calman Hart, Dave Howard, uh, Joy Eden Harrison, Elizabeth Hummel, Jewel was around. She would sing harmonies with you while she was serving coffee. <laughs> it was amazing. And um, this this little scene started to grow. Steve Poltz was coming around, even though he was in the punk scene. He was intrigued by acoustic music, and he he would come play his acoustic songs. And a band called the Swamp Poets, which were now they're 
called Bug Guts. <laughs> they're, they're, they're crazy, <laughs> Sign up the times. Yeah, man. They were around. And um, and Joe, it wasn't like he had the greatest coffee in the world. or it, not, it wasn't bad or anything, but it wasn't like why people came there. Everything about why people came to Java Joe's was because there was a music scene happening and there was a magic thing. And when we would do shows, it would be packed out the door. People standing outside, craning, trying to just look through the door and hear. So John and I had this idea to start doing, like, I think it was every Thursday. No, it was one Thursday a month. We'd started doing a thing called the One Shot Showcase, where you would come and you got to play one song. Mm -hmm. And that was it. And like 30 songwriters would show up. Wow. Literally everyone I just mentioned and everyone you can think of in the acoustic music scene at that time that was just starting out. And they'd play one song a piece. Uh And I was playing percussion i also had songs but i i was playing djembe at the time and uh they would all ask me to play with them mm-hmm. and so i would just stand on stage at java joe's and the the songwriters would just filter past me uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got to know everybody's songs and i got to know everybody that way and joe i started to show up every other night of the week that joe would book all the other artists and i became their percussionist and i literally <laughs> for about five years was making my living playing every night with a different person at Java Joe's. And so (laughs) I got to really, I got to know Joe really well. He was Mm -hmm. an amazing guy. And they're, they're really in those early days, you know, there wasn't a lot of money and there were nights when I was there, but I, you know, I, I, I just didn't make very much money. And that guy would make sure I went home with cash, you know, whether it was made or not. He put money in my pocket, man, like literally paid my bills. Uh And I played there every night and told, I was, I told everybody about it. And I, a lot of people know, I, I tend to smoke marijuana and, and, um, you know, I would stand out behind Java Joe's. My, my motto is I stand behind Java Joe's. (laughs) 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 But all that happened because I was sneaking in the bathroom and taking little hits and then I would spray, he had like this air freshener in there. Uh-huh. And so I was going in there like three times a night and spraying air freshener, thinking I was getting away with it. <laughs> and Joe, finally, Joe pulled me aside and he goes, Burke, why don't you just go stand outside, man? I know you're smoking weed and everybody could smell it. I think everybody knows. <laughs> and so I told that story on stage like 20 minutes later and it became this thing. And and my reputation as the Willie Nelson of San Diego sort of came from, <laughs> came from all that. And, and, um, but, but it also led to these amazing nights where everyone would end up out back having a little party and just mm-hmm. getting to know each other and sitting around in circles, playing songs till all hours of the night, no matter where Joe was, that happened. And it was because Joe knows how to create a safe atmosphere for artists. Mm-hmm. And I've actually seen him alienate customers to make sure that the artist's space was good. Mm-hmm. And there are customers that kind of have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder for Joe. And I could see why they would, but it's because he's so staunchly uh, protective of that space. Mm-hmm. And he really loves singer songwriters man and he takes care of us and he's as big of a rock star as anybody oh yeah he's awesome he's just gone so he was down there he was in Poway at the chicken pie diner for all those years and then um that place was kind of run its course and and i think they were raising the rent or something Mm -hmm. and there was a place down in ocean beach called rumors coffee house right on the corner it's where starbucks is on the corner of bacon and newport sign of the times uh, yeah and Joe and rumors was wanting out. And so Java Joe's moved in there mm-hmm. and, you know, like there was a jewel MTV special recorded in there. And mm-hmm. that's where a lot of amazing shows happened. That place was a haunted old bank. And now there's a Starbucks in it and it's uh it's a different kind of thing. But when he moved to ocean beach, that's when like the San Diego music scene proper and all of the P all the PR people, people and press people started to go, Oh, what's going on. Mm-hmm. And they showed up and that's where like Jason Mraz showed up at the open mic one night. We, and we would all come down on Monday nights to Wendy, Wendy's open mic night. It was a dude named Jeffrey, but he called himself Wendy. Oh, okay. and it was because he was, he was the Rugburns. That's Steve Poltz band, <laughs> punk band. He was the Rugburns uh, road, road guy. And Steve Poltz named him Wendy. Uh-huh. And he used to lay out, 
in the daytime, he would lay out in a string bikini so that he had bikini lines and folks <laughs> would make him take his shirt off at the shows and show his bikini line. Anyway, Wendy op- did the Wendy's open mic night. He had a little theme song. Thanks for coming out to Java Joe's tonight. It was this adorable little song that he wrote. And he's this quirky, he is this quirky little dude. But when the open mic ended at 10 or 11, we would all play our songs for each other. And that was one of those nights we were there and Jason came in and he got the last spot on the open mic. And we were all backstage in Joe's office like we would be. And we heard this sound and we're like, Mm. and then John Edwards came in and goes, you guys got to come see this guy. And so we came out, we all heard a second song and we're like, whoa. And it was like that. So it was an amazing time there. And it was probably about a 15 year period of this incredible run of, of just a, a beautiful inspirational scene. And there's so many little stories to tell about just thousands of nights of, of magic uh, of all kinds and funny stories and all that. And I, I really encourage people to, uh, you know, talk to someone who was there. We got to figure out a way to, to document that time. Well, he had such a profound impact on the San Diego music scene. It's really amazing to, you know, the more I learn about what he did. And, you know, that's a reminder to all of us. He's just one guy, right? And yeah. look what an impact he had. It's That's it's, right. You know, sometimes... Yeah, you get an interesting idea and one person who's inspired and yeah, magic can really happen. So yeah, that's it's, right. it's interesting that's right. to learn about him. San Diego has a pretty mixed reputation as a music town now. What do you think its pros and cons are? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. We're, we're hard hitting. <laughs> yeah. Pros, well, the pros are, are what, all the things we've just been talking about. It's a huge supportive scene as our artists go mm. with each other it's it's also a deeply talented unbelievably character filled scene that could just this one scene could supply all of the world's rock stars no problem of every genre there is so much talent here and i'm sure that's the case in other cities but something about this place i don't know what it is mm. and they're all very supportive i think one of the cons that we're up against here is is aside from the stuff we've been talking about where in my genre, there's not as many clubs as there used to be, but um, there's a lot to do here. Yeah, <laughs> It's beautiful. Right. There's a beach, there's mountains. And so like in a place like Austin, it's, it's not that there's not a lot to do around there, but, but, you know, music is their tourism. Music is their, is everything to them and that culture there. So that, that probably won't happen here. Although, we could we could we could do it if the people would just come out so so it would be great to be able to have uh, a little bit more support from the community just in terms of like folks coming out for live music taking a chance on something or a club that they heard is cool where they always have cool bands you know i'd love them for to come to my show but i just want people to go out and take a chance on music and mm-hmm. remember how much you need that music in your life i think a pro of this town is is there is some infrastructure built. There's San Diego Music Awards. There's a few publications like the Troubadour mm. and uh, and City Beat and the Reader that and I'm missing some, but um, Bart Mendoza writes in a lot of different beach papers and stuff. Uh, the San Diego Music, the San Diego Union, all of these things talk about what we're doing. The the information is out there. It's just we need the community to respond. Mm. so that's a pro but it's also a con i mean there's festivals there's so much there's there's a lot of infrastructure people are trying here Mm. and and i have a huge respect for someone like kevin hellman who is i mean that guy's single he tried to retire but we pulled him back we needed it (laughs) because he left a huge vacuum and and we needed him and so that that's a huge pro for there's just a huge supportive community here also there's a lot of, there's some great recording studios and really good world-class musicians and producers here. Mm-hmm. And that gets overlooked a lot, but uh, that's, that's a real, that's a real thing. It, we can definitely make records. I think we can make them better than they do in LA because there's just so much up there down here. We can take a little time with it and, 
and not mm-hmm. worry about the next person like over your shoulder trying to get in and all that. But mm-hmm. well, so, well, 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 San Diego really the, the the artist community there is really supportive of each other, and it's not like in LA where it may be more competitive. I mean, I'm sure there's some competitiveness in San Diego, but a lot of it is just hey, let's work together, let's figure this out. I mean, it's just such a yeah. nice, a great, a great community for that. Yep. I think the only other con I could think of is just there's not enough money in it. We, we're all trying to figure out ways to to be able to make a better living at it. So I'm very lucky. I say that as one of the lucky ones. I, I pay my bills and, and all that, but uh, yeah, not without help. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that uh, comment you made about there's a lot to do here. I hear that about a lot of things like, you know, the the baseball people will talk about that, that the fans aren't as fervent. Uh, as they are in other cities, because there's so much competition, you know, with outdoors and so many things to do. And I think that's true also about the music scene. Like I rarely see music being promoted as something to visit San Diego for. Not that if we didn't have Legoland and SeaWorld and all those other things that they wouldn't promote it. It's just that we've got those other big, you know, more corporate uh, attractions. Right. And, you know, I've heard people say that about the theater scene too, that it's surprisingly good in San Diego, but it's not really promoted. It's not really recognized because nope. it's o- overshadowed by other things. Yeah. yeah it's, that's a, it's, right. it's an interesting idea that you're sort of in competition with other things in the city, which is a kind of a weird way to look at it because you'd think people would come here for a variety of reasons one of which would be music, right? That it's not that it's not that we're competing, but that it's that it just is additive. But somehow it doesn't quite work that way. I wonder if someone from the finance world could somehow organize venue owners and artists into a, a an advertising co-op mm-hmm. where we literally could do commercials and ads that say, come to San Diego, mm-hmm. you know, or just to San Diegans, hey, you have a world-class music scene here, you've freaking idiots wake, <laughs> wake up. up stop surfing yeah. but i mean i think there might be something to that there yeah. are some powerful folks in town who know what they're doing and there are people like tim mays who who might be very interested in something like that who knows if it would be him but i mean there's people you know, tim mays is, a, is an amazing venue owner in san diego and, and who's been around for a while and he may have some some great unique insights on on what to do there and, and someone um, there's just so many people, Ingrid Croce and so many mm-hmm. folks in town who, yeah, right. who, who could be inspirational in those ways. So who knows? Well, I'm thinking coffee houses were a big part of the, of back in the earlier days and there's Starbucks in every corner, get Starbucks to do a one day a month musician night or something, or mm-hmm. at all the different Starbucks, different people will show up at different Starbucks and play for an hour. I can't believe that hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. except that there's cabaret license things that uh. become issues. So you'd have to, but I can't, Starbucks, if anybody could do it, Starbucks could get cities to relax that rule. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and there are ways to do that, but just having a, an acoustic performer in the corner is, doesn't seem like it would be a huge issue, but who knows? It has to start somewhere though, or, or, or have them stand out front and play and put some tables out there. And so people can hear what's going on. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe maybe we organize with the food truck industry and oh. start to have shows at, at the food truck sites and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think they're already doing that a little bit. There's ways that we can do this. It's all going to be grassroots and underground unless we get some some kind of real finances going. But there's some something we we, we got to do something. Yeah, it's interesting to me to see after the pandemic that there I notice it. I I see the reverse. I see people staying home more than they used to. But I also see a lot of people kind of coming out for smaller events for a sense of community, right? Sort of getting to know your neighborhood again. And I think that was always the appeal of the coffee houses was it was a gathering of interesting people and that was an attraction in and of itself right but the music brought right. it up you know brought it all together for us but yeah. yeah i gotta believe that that need is still there from us as human beings we just haven't found a good way to activate it somehow we're just in a transition we're in a, a frustrating transition period that we're, we just haven't gotten there yet but we're on our way mm-hmm. 
I, I'm from Upper Michigan, and and that, when last time I was home back in Marquette, there was an interesting event going on there that was a way that they were promoting their music. And there's this one main street called Third Street, and what they were doing was inviting any musician to come and play somewhere on Third Street. And you would go down Third Street, you could walk or take a car, and you would hear bands playing. Like at every on every block, there's probably two or three bands playing out in a place or outside or on someone's porch or something. And it was a way for, for people to come and organize themselves to come and see this and they could walk and hear different bands play and, and a way to mm. promote the artist too. And it was, it was really fascinating. It was, we, we just lucked into finding it and, but they, they do it once a month. That's great. Yeah. Wow, Are you a duper? I am a youper. No, you're from the Upper Peninsula. I knew there was something weird about you. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. I'm a youper. <laughs> yeah, man. No, I, we played up there. I forget the little town. Um, what town is it you're from? Well, I'm from Marquette, which is one of the bigger towns. Okay. Well, uh, this one, it wasn't called Mystic, but it was like, it, it seemed like it was a town like that or so. But it was a, it was mm. a larger town. Mm. And we played a video. Berkeley Hart did. Mark Marquette's one of the biggest ones. It's, it's, yeah. Maybe it was Marquette. Maybe it was Marquette. They have a festival there, and I know sometimes bands come up there and play at a festival. This was a bar, a bar kind of coffee house bar, like at an old hotel oh. lobby. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, I, maybe I'm thinking of a different town, but anyway, I love that area up there. It's so beautiful. Gosh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it was such a for a Southern California kid. You know, it was a real. Oh, it's 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 beautiful, and and also. The people up there seem to appreciate music and stuff when it when it's around. Yeah. Um, well, it's yeah. There's not a lot. There's not. There's not a lot to do. <laughs> that's that's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, we used to get a band come up once a month, once every couple months, and play in up in Upper Michigan. And man, everybody would go because it's like I mean, I mean I'm talking somebody like the Cars came and played once, things like mm. that. Cool. Back back in the day, and it was always a lot of Ted Nugent and things like that, or. Black Oak, Arkansas would play. I mean, there was a lot of those kind of bands, and that wow. was okay. It was still fun to go and and have something. <laughs> oh man, that's so cool! I've been listening to those old car cars records lately. Just oh. as a recording guy, it doesn't oh, yeah. get cooler than that. They those guys they really made great sounding and feeling records. One more question for Jeff, and this is a a, a quick one. What's the first record you bought that you remember? The first record. Uh, well, the first record I remember making my own was Hard Day's Night by the Beatles. My uh-huh. mom had it and I grabbed, I pulled that out of there and took it in. in, in <laughs> also, she, she had a Neil Sedaka record that I mm-hmm. took in my room because it was just all these songs. The songs were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're talking about, I was like six or whatever. I got my first little record <laughs> mm-hmm. player and um, the Beatles but it was hard days night for sure. But the first record I bought with my own money was a record, a U2 record called October. Oh, oh. it's their second album and still my favorite U2 record. And the reason why I love it so much is they had done an album called boy that was very successful when they were kind of punky sort of punky band. Mm-hmm. So then they got, uh, a record deal with Island and they were going to make this record called, I forget what the name of it was going to be. It was going to be their big, you know, debut on a major label and uh, Steve Lillywhite produced it and they had sketches of songs, but back then you would just go in with sketches and you'd finish them off with the producer and the, and the band and then record them. And they got in there and the night before they got there, someone stole Bono's lyric book. Oh, uh. All of the sketches were lost. And so they literally started from scratch in the studio the next morning. And that record is that what you hear is them just playing. And they, he was literally making up words off the top of his head. And it's so cool to me. It's called October. This record. It's so cool. to me. We're talking about 30 years ago, Uh 35 years ago, 40 years, 40 years ago. Oh my God. Um, But that record just changed my life, man. Those guys. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. It's my pleasure. Gosh, you guys are awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming back on. And is there anything you'd like to share with the audience before we let you go? Well, you know what? If you go, I'm on Facebook. You can find, um, there's a Jeff Berkeley page. 
There's a Jeff Berkeley and the band page. There's a Berkeley Heart page. And then there's my own personal one, which is under Jeffrey Allen Berkeley. But my last name is spelled B-E-R-K-L-E-Y. B-E-R-K-L-E-Y. And the band is B-A-N-N-E-D. So if you want to find Jeff Berkeley in the band, that's a great way to find out when we're playing. And um, Berkeley Heart as well. And that's B-E-R-K-L-E-Y. And then Heart is spelled H-A-R-T. And there's jeffberkeley.com, there's berkeleyheart.com, and those are great ways. But I really would encourage you guys to come out and see me and my new band. It, I love Berkeley Heart, and, and we have people at our shows, and it's great. And I want folks to know that, that Jeff Berkeley and the band is a really fun band to see. It's, it's like driving a Ferrari. These, these are the guys uh, and gals that I use in, in the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're my they're they're top of the list unbelievable musicians and we take the songs and jam on them and and have a really great time and there's a bunch of songs of mine nobody's ever heard that i play in those in that band and and uh, i'd love for folks to come out and see that so come do that it's sort of like if you took woody guthrie and the grateful dead and put that together yeah it's like folk americana jam band (laughs) and uh it's really fun and i think it's its own sort of thing that people will be surprised i think you really dig it so come on out and see that otherwise if you want to make a record man uh let's make a record i i've got 13 going right now but there's always room (laughs) for one more there's always room there's plenty of there's plenty of uh of room for you guys to come in and i just love working with artists to to make their dreams come true in those ways so uh, just find me and uh, let's do it. Awesome. Yeah. Good luck with everything, Jeff. And again, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Jennifer, so much. I appreciate that. And thank you guys. Have a great afternoon. This is a brand new song by Jeff Berkeley and the band, B-A-N-N-E-D. Its title is Without a Net, A-N-N-E-T-T-E. Clever, huh? It was just released last month, and check it out. It's pretty cool.
Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.